You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Well, good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? What a gross weekend outside this weekend, right? No. Everybody else been spending a bunch of time outside this weekend. Yeah, I got to um, ride horse on the Ann Urban uh, this weekend, which was such a blast. And so uh, we're spending tons of time outside as a family this weekend and just soaking in what I'm thinking is probably going to be our last nice weekend of the year. Uh, But I'm really glad that you are here this morning. We are starting a new series uh, today called Gospel, Good News for Who? And over the next few weeks together, we're going to be looking as a church at, at these different lenses, these different teachings that Jesus gave about who the gospel is actually for, because Jesus did not preach just a general gospel. He preached a specific gospel for people. It was targeted And it was specific. And so that's what we're going to do today. So I want to kick things off and um, tell you about a famous psychologist named Stanley Milgram. How many of you have ever heard of Stanley Milgram before from Yale? So he, nobody, awesome, or very few. He was a, Dan has, awesome. He was a famous psychologist from Yale University in the 60s. And right around the 1960s, the Nuremberg trials were happening where Nazi war criminals were being charged for their crimes during World War II. And Milgram wanted to kind of study what would cause people like Nazis to be able to inflict so much harm on another human being without it necessarily causing a care in the world for them, without it affecting them. And so he ran this series of ethically questionable experiments at Yale in the 60s where he would have two people come in, and there would be a third that was running the experiment, and one person was to sit at a kind of control board. You can see him up there on the top left there. Sit at a control board, and the other was connected to a variety of different like electrodes and electric shock. And the other guy would sit on, on the different side of the wall so they could not see each other, and the guy on the top left was in charge of administering to the guy on the top right slowly increasing electric shocks. And it started really, really subtle, right? Anybody have an electric fence for their dogs? Like really, really subtle, right? And then, uh, so they administer the first shock. And then the researcher would say, okay, you gotta do the second shock now. And so he'd do the second shock. And and increasingly the shocks got worse and, and the screams got louder until it was virtually unbearable, and the highest level of shock that was administered would have been potentially fatal. Now, here is what the person administering the shocks did not know. He was the only one not in on the experiment. All of the shocks were fake. It was an actor on the other side of the wall. But what they were testing is how far a human being was willing to go to administer harm towards another person. And do you want to know what percentage of people went all the way with the shocks? 65%. Only 35% of research participants said, nope, that's enough. I can't inflict any more harm. I'm done. I'm out. Only 35% said this. 
But I think what's the most fascinating part of this entire study to me is he did some different variations of it. And one of the variations that Milgram did on this experiment is he actually removed the wall that was separating the two people. He removed the wall so that the person administering the shock could see the face and the name of the person that they were harming. And by this simple move of removing the barrier, removing the wall, the people that were willing to go all the way dropped from 65% down to 35%. It was a complete reversal just because they were able to see the face of the person. Now, here's what I know is powerful. It's interesting to me that it was the barrier that made the person indifferent. It was the barrier between one person and another, between not being able to see his face or know his story that made this person indifferent to the point where they were willing to inflict so much harm on another person. And in small ways, we, we kind of do the same thing today, don't we? There's a reason why some of us are willing to say things on social media that we would never say to another person to their face, right? Because barriers, like a keyboard or a phone, can create an indifference in us towards other people. There's a reason why someone who cuts you off on the road can elicit a rage in you that doesn't exist anywhere else in your life because your car acts as a barrier between you and that other person. Like, Mommy, why are you waving at that person with one finger? Mommy's just saying hi, okay? Okay, side story here. I, I wasn't going to share this, but um, <laughs> a number of years ago, I was being tailgated quite closely by a granny who really had somewhere to go. And usually grannies drive slow, right? I'm the one tailgating them. But she was tailgating me, and I wasn't going slow. I was going a few miles over the speed limit. And she's tailgating me, like, so closely. And I'm getting, like, more and more frustrated as we continue driving, and she's tailgating me. And so finally we get to a red light, and what do I do? <laughs> I get out of the car. And I say, what are you doing? Why are you following me so closely? I wasn't a pastor at the time. No, I was, actually. Um, and she goes, well, I think my house is on fire up there. And I was like, then go! Like, why are you stopped right now? Just go! Like, my, my anger turned to concern very quickly. Why? Because all of a sudden, the barrier was removed. Right? all of a sudden the barrier was removed. There's something about barriers that make us indifferent towards other people. And there are so many barriers in our world right now. There are so many barriers of indifference in our world right now. I think about just even the different barriers that exist right now. There are barriers between genders right now in our world, between men and women. There are barriers between races right now. Very real barriers. There are barriers between rich people and poor people. There are barriers between generations, between young people and old people. I think so, there are so many barriers. And I'm just going to go off script for a second. There's a lot of people who have figured out how to monetize those barriers and turn them into outrage, those barriers of indifference. And here's what I want to tell you this morning. I have good news if you're a follower of Jesus. And I know not all of us are here in this room, but if you are a follower of Jesus, I have some good news for you. You do not get the luxury of indifference towards other people. You don't get the luxury of indifference towards other people. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, why is that good news? That doesn't sound like good news. 
That is good news because Jesus didn't choose indifference towards you. Right? He didn't allow the barrier that existed between us and the Father, between us and him, to cause indifference. But instead, he moved in closer. And here's what I believe Jesus teaches throughout his ministry, not just one off, but over and over again, is that indifference towards other people actually is reflective of our indifference towards him. I want to say that again, that our indifference towards other people actually exposes our indifference towards him. There was a Christian named Diedrich Bonhoeffer who lived in Nazi Germany, was put to death by the Nazis, and he has this famous quote that I want us to frame our first week together, and the quote is this, only love gets close enough to know. Only love gets close enough to know. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a parable from Jesus, a teaching that Jesus gave about this very idea. And I want you, as we read through this together, we're going to be in Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. As we read this, I want you to see how little room Jesus, in fact, leaves for indifference of his people. Okay, so Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 23. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously. I don't even know what, the, we had to look up that word during the run through this morning. I, I, I think of like scrum diddlyumptiously, like uh, what movie is that, Willy Wonka? Uh, he feasted sumptuously every day and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked this poor guy's sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at Abraham's side. Now let's pause here because... This is kind of a dark emo parable from Jesus, right? Like you have these two guys, they live very different lives, and then they die. But even as we read, before we read on in the parable, I just want to invite you to take a look at a little bit deeper level here. That Think about the barriers that exist between these two guys, right? Jesus is painting a picture of two guys who could not be more different from each other. On one hand, you have a guy who is rich. On the other hand, you have a guy who is poor, on one hand, you have Jesus say, this rich man, he's covered with luxurious garments. And on the other hand, you have a, a poor guy who is covered with what? Sores. On one hand, you have a rich guy who lives inside the gate, and where does the poor man live? The outside of the gate. On one hand, you have a guy who is feasting every single day, and on the other hand, you have a guy who is starving every single day, who is hoping for scraps at best from the rich man's table. And then even in death, you have Jesus paint this picture of a rich man who is buried. This rich man had a funeral, right? He's buried, he's honored even in death, and you have a poor man. There's no reference to a burial. There's no reference to a funeral. Most likely, he died in the street, and his body was tossed into a pit because of his status, and here's what I think of when I think of these, these two guys. There are a lot of barriers in between them, aren't there? There are a lot of barriers in between them. And at first glance, the obvious conclusion of this parable 
is that the rich man is condemned because he's not merciful to Lazarus. But perhaps this isn't a parable just about charity. I think this parable actually goes a level deeper than that. I think this parable is actually a parable about relationship, not just about charity. You see, as you take a deeper look, this rich man, he was allowing a poor homeless man with a case of advanced leprosy to live at his gate. Think about this for a moment. Think about what this would have meant for this rich man, where likely movers and shakers of society were going in and out of his gate, coming in and out, and there's this poor homeless guy begging on the outside of the gate. Now, let's be honest. How many of us have a homeless person living right outside our front door? Right? Most of us would make a phone call if that happened, right, to the cops. And yet this rich guy, he has this poor man living outside of his gate. In doing so, this extremely rich man is doing more to take care of this poor guy than most of us are willing to do if we're honest. But there's one thing that Jesus points out in this parable that I think is actually really unique. In fact, he gives one detail about this poor guy. And this detail is so unique to this specific parable that no other parable that Jesus ever told had this detail about a character. Does anybody know what the detail is? Gives the poor guy a name. He names him Lazarus. Does the rich man have a name? No. There's, in fact, no other parable that Jesus tells in his ministry where he gives one of his characters, a not real character, a fictional character, a name. And it's not just any name. It's the name Lazarus, the name of his very best friend on the planet, a name that means God is my helper. You see, where this rich man just sees another poor guy. Sitting outside of his gate, Jesus rehumanizes this poor guy, and he actually gives him a name. Now, why is this so significant? I want to take kind of a right turn here. So my wife and I, we, uh, we got a bunch of chickens during COVID. <laughs> like, did not see that one coming. Uh, we got a bunch of chickens during COVID, and we made the mistake pretty early on of attempting to give a name to every single one of the chickens that we got. So we started with four chickens, and then if you know chicken math, it doubled, and we had eight, and then we had 16, and then we had 25, and so on and so forth. And uh, we attempted to name, I'm not joking, 25 different chickens, okay? And uh, so we had Goldie, and we had Smokey, and we had Blue, and all of these different names, but then something happened, that was very traumatizing for my kids. One of the chickens died. <laughs> In fact, it was our golden retriever who decapitated him. I have a picture. I'm not showing it. Don't worry. But I will, I will show you later if you want to see it. And uh, my child, all three of them actually are traumatized because Ryder decapitated Smokey. And they are wounded, and they are crying, and they are traumatized. And so from that point on, we did not give our chickens names anymore. Because there's something, believe it or not, far less traumatizing about chicken eight dying than about Smokey dying, okay? <laughs> the reason I share that is because there is something powerfully humanizing. <laughs> chickens are not humans, but... <laughs> I just got that. There's something powerfully dignifying about something that happens when this guy has given a name. 
Something changes about the story when statistics are actually turned into stories. Things change. There's something powerful that happens, even going back to Milgram's experiment, there's something powerful that happens in us when barriers are removed and we actually embody the love of Jesus, a love that gets close enough to know people's stories, to know people's names, to know what they bring into this place, to know what they carry out there on those streets, to know what the baggage they are bringing into our workplace. Are we the type of people who have built enough trust and enough rapport with the people around us where they are actually willing to bring us their stories, their pains, their hurts? Or are we just the type of people that are standing on street sides with our signs and we may be righteous, but in the end our, our heart just looks like the rich man? See, this rich man, he didn't see Lazarus. For him, it was just another poor man. It was just another fetus. It's just another school shooting. It's just another racist redneck. It's just another foster kid. It's just another thug. It's just another. It's just another. It's just another. This is the way that we are taught to move through our world as if it's just another it's just another. And where we are quick to see just another, Jesus sees a name. And friends, that is not just good news for other people. That is good news for you. That is good news for me and my story. When I look at the story of the church, like the early church specifically, I see a group of people who were not content with just being indifferent towards others. In fact, there were markers. There were things that the early church was so well known for that it shook the culture around them. It changed the dynamic of the culture around them. And there were five markers, five specific things that if you look back on church history, like the 2,000-year story that we are part of, when this thing first got kicked off, when this thing called the church was first birth. These five things are things the church was marked by, was known for. I've shared them before, and I'll probably share them again after this service at some point. But these are the five things that the church was known for. Number one, the early church was famous for its hospitality to the poor and the suffering. Hospitality was part of the church's DNA. It was not just, so in the culture surrounding the early church, it was traditional to care for the suffering and the poor in your own family. But that's not what the early church just did. They took it a step further, and they actually moved in close to those who were poor and those who were suffering on the streets. There's a Roman official named Julian who is not a Christian, who is pretty hostile towards Christians, and he has a famous line where he says, not only are these dang Christians, he didn't say dang, I'm ad-libbing here, but not only are these dang Christians taking care of their own poor, but they're taking care of our poor as well. We can't compete with their generosity and their hospitality. Like this group of people was known for their hospitality towards people who could do nothing to ever repay them. That's number one. Number two is they were a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. That in this culture of honor and shame, it was actually considered weak and shameful to not retaliate on somebody who had done something wrong to you. That was viewed as a symbol of weakness in that culture. Honestly, I think it's kind of viewed as a symbol of weakness in ours too. And yet the community of the body of Christ was a community that was more persecuted than you and I can ever dream of being persecuted. 
And they chose the way of forgiveness, and they chose the way of reconciliation, and it shook the empire that they were a part of. Number three, it was a sexual counterculture. They redefined sexuality for the Roman world. This is just so beautiful to me. In a world where women were viewed as property and men were able to just go out and sleep with whoever they want and do whatever they want and run around and have no moral bearing on them or their family or their relationship to their wife, enter the church that says, no, actually marriage is a covenant partnership between two equals. Husbands, lay down your lives for your wives. Wives, honor your husbands. And there was this unity, this unity between genders that the church became known for because it elevated women, it held men accountable, and it was a beautiful, beautiful thing in that culture. It changed the dynamic. In fact, you can actually track, (laughs) you can track the spread of the early church throughout the Roman Empire And you know how you can track it? By when sex slavery and prostitution and sex trafficking became illegal in different parts. That's the type of community that the church embodied. That's a love that gets close enough to know. That's a love that's not indifferent towards other people. That's a love that moves in. The fourth one here. The fourth one is the early church was a multi-ethnic community that experienced startling racial unity. Startling racial unity. I'm going to be honest, this is an area where white Christians have a lot of room to grow. You cannot read this book without seeing that on every other page of the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament are dealing with this dealing with what it means to bring down these barriers of indifference between races, between people groups, between different ethnicities. Start with Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 actually gives a picture of what a gospel-impacted life looks like, and it involves tearing down some horizontal barriers of indifference that exist between people. So that's number four. And then the last one here is it was a community committed to the sanctity of life. It was a community committed to the sanctity of life. One of the biggest problems in the Roman Empire was that infants were largely and easily discarded in this world. So if a family didn't want their child, they would bring it to the garbage heap, to the local dump, and they would leave it there, and they would say, okay, the the exposure, the elements, they'll just kind of run their course. Nature can run its course, and whatever happens, it was the God's will, and and, we're just going to leave our infant there. They're not wanted. Who was it that stepped in to adopt these babies, to raise them as their own? It's the church. It was the church that filled that gap. Why? Because love gets close enough to know. Love is not indifferent. Love is not distant. Love actually moves in and it gets close enough to know. And this is the point that Jesus is getting at here in Lazarus and the rich man's story. I want to continue reading this story here because what Jesus does is he actually gives us more of a glimpse into the rich man's heart and why he actually is in hell. And so we're going to continue reading here in verse 24. Luke 16, verse 24. And the rich man called out, Father Abraham... 
Have mercy on me. So remember, he's calling out in hell. He can see Abraham. He's saying, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. What a jerk. Think about this. Even as he's being tormented in the flames of Hades, he still views Lazarus as beneath him and below him. Can I just say, church, that there is nothing you bring to the table that elevates your status in the kingdom of God that we value in our world? It's not your wealth. It's not your status. It's not your education. It's not your socioeconomic position. There is nothing that you bring to the table that can impress God, that can make his love for you grow. And this rich man here is being tormented in Hades over this issue. Reading on here. But Abraham said, child, <laughs> child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you a great, what's that word? Chasm. A barrier is fixed between us in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Don't miss this last one. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. So this guy, this rich man who is being tormented in hell, not only doesn't understand that Lazarus and him are not, like he's not above Lazarus because of his socioeconomic position, but then his only urgent concern is the well-being of his brothers. Notice he doesn't say, hey, like tell my brothers to go find more Lazaruses in the world. No, he says, tell Lazarus to go warn my brothers so that they don't have the same fate as, we, as I do. And I love how scholar and theologian Leonard Sweet describes this interaction here. This is what he says about the rich man. He says this, The rich man is in hell not because he didn't take care of the poor. He actually did take care of the poor better than most, right? He had this guy sitting outside his gate. The rich man is in hell because he thought he had five brothers when God had actually given him six. The rich man's indifference towards Lazarus reveals a deeper indifference that this guy has towards Jesus. The rich man's indifference towards Lazarus reveals a deeper indifference that this guy has towards Jesus. The rich man has his gate, right? This physical barrier that existed in life. But then even deeper than that, there's this spiritual chasm between these two guys. Lazarus may have had physical poverty, but this rich guy had something much, much worse. Spiritual poverty. An indifference towards Lazarus, an indifference towards Jesus. See, this rich guy was not condemned because he was rich. That's not the point of the story. In fact, plenty of rich people in the Bible are considered righteous. Abraham, who's in the story, was a rich guy here on earth. Nothing wrong with being rich. But what Jesus is getting at here is under the surface, in his outward actions, there is an indifference towards the person of Jesus that exists. And that is ultimately why this guy is separated. 
He was condemned because he was indifferent to his own spiritual poverty expressed in his indifference towards Lazarus. Does that make sense? Like the indifference towards Lazarus is the surface issue, but it reveals an indifference towards Jesus that lives deeper under the surface. And this is how Jesus ends his emo parable this morning. Verses 29 to 31, this is what he says. He says, but, but Abraham said, they, your five brothers, rich man, have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he goes, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Right? So if Lazarus shows up from the dead, which ironically, Jesus raised a guy named Lazarus from the dead. If Lazarus shows up from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said to this rich guy, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither, this is just brilliant of Jesus' storytelling, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is a foreshadow of the resurrection of Jesus. That if a man who rose from the dead three days after he was crucified does not convince people of their own spiritual poverty, nothing else will. This is what he's getting at. This is what he's getting at for this rich man. That he's highlighting the spiritual poverty that exists because your indifference towards other people just reveals your indifference towards Jesus. And this isn't just Brad's opinion on this text. This is the, this is the teaching and the model of Jesus over and over again. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love God, right? Love the Lord your God with everything that you are. And then he said the second is just like it, tied intimately to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Indifference towards people represents an indifference we have towards Jesus. But love, <laughs> love gets close enough to know. And so what, what is the barrier for you keeping you indifferent towards people? What is the barrier in your life that's keeping you indifferent towards people? For some of us, it's this device right here. This device, while it's got some incredible functions, incredible tools, is actually keeping us indifferent towards loving other people. That the way we choose to engage other people is through this, rather than grabbing a cup of coffee with somebody and sitting face to face across a table and engaging. Is your life one where you are being invited into the lives of others because you embody a love that gets close enough to know? Here's another one. For some of us, our barrier is our schedule. I'm just too busy. I got place and place and place to go. I'll put up a, an opinion on Facebook, but I won't actually take the time to sit down and hear a real story and pray with someone who's hurting and be present with someone who needs Jesus. What's your barrier? For others of us, our barrier is pride or self-sufficiency. I've earned what I have. They have not. And so what we do is we say, okay, I'm over here, they're over there, and I'm perfectly comfortable with keeping it that way. That's not the way of Jesus, friends. The way of Jesus is a love embodied that gets close enough to know the stories of other people, that gets close enough to know to enter the pain of other people, that gets close enough to know. And so our pride, our self-sufficiency, our self-righteousness has no place in embodying the love of Jesus towards other people. 
Doesn't mean we don't carry his righteousness and his holiness. Absolutely we do. But our own self-righteousness, our own self-sufficiency, our own pride has no place in the way we walk through this world. How about this barrier? Is your barrier insecurity? I could never be used by God. I don't know enough. I don't have enough. Friends, God specializes in using people who don't think they're qualified to be used. He, he's a master at doing that. You see, to be indifferent towards others is to ultimately be indifference to Jesus, but love gets close enough to know. I'm going to be really honest. There is a barrier that, that I experience, and, and sometimes that barrier looks like a fear of man, a fear of people's opinions, a fear of the, the support and the approval of people versus the, the, you know, the anger and the, the disagreement of people. And sometimes that wars in me. And one of the things I have to do as a pastor is I actually have to cast that out as much as humanly possible. And say that when I get up on the stage, there is an audience of one, and his name is Jesus. And there is something that God has been convicting me about with this sermon over and over again to the point where he's like, Brad, you have to speak to this. Brad, you have, if you do not speak to this, you are being disobedient to what I want you to speak to me, or what I want you to speak to my people. And I was like, God, I, like, I'd rather just be indifferent. Toward, nope. I need you to speak to this. I need you to speak to this. And for, for weeks and months now, he's just been pressing this on my heart. You have to speak to this. And so I have been praying about this one issue for weeks and weeks now. I've brought it to men and women alike in our church. I brought it to leadership. In fact, the, the Zero Collective, our network of churches, have all unanimously agreed that, that this is actually something we need to speak to directly and boldly because indifference towards people is indifference towards Jesus in this area. And so as many of you know, coming up in just a couple weeks, November 8, we have an election, right? Right? Nobody knows that? Nobody heard about that? And uh, one of the things that I have said really consistently is I believe it's an abuse of this stage to ever endorse a candidate or a party specifically. I will not do that. I refuse to do that. However, I will speak to issues that I believe are deeply spiritual, deeply moral, that are human rights issues. And one of the issues that's before us is a ballot proposal called Proposal 3. And it's titled the Reproductive Freedom for All Proposal. And this is a pro proposal that creates a state constitutional right for abortion on demand that goes broader than the standard set in Roe versus Wade in 73 and Casey versus Planned Parenthood in 1992, both of which Supreme Court cases. Now, I'm not here to like make all of the noise and add to the noise around this, around this proposal, but I just wanna make a couple observations to you when it comes to this sermon and where the rubber hits the road. Number one, there are two primary arguments that I hear people inside the church and outside the church making about abortion to justify it. The first one is this, that the unborn are somehow less than human. Right? That is a barrier of indifference. That is a barrier. The womb is a barrier. It is a separation of indifference. There is a reason why after someone has an ultrasound, the abortion rate drops because there's something powerful that happens when that barrier is reduced and we see a face and we see a story. That's number one. Number two, the second argument that I hear, and I'll be honest, I hear a lot of Christians making this, 
And it's this argument. I would never do it, but I want others to have the right to do it. I could never do it for my own life, but I, I want others to do it. Or this is a women's issue. Men, keep your distance. And this is the same idea, right? It's your issue over there. I'm over here, and I'm perfectly content with a barrier of indifference between us. We can, we can have that approach when it comes to whether or not we like pineapple on pizza, but we're not going to have that approach when it comes to the human rights of other people. Because love gets close enough to know. And these two barriers, just so you know, are the exact same reasons why Christians stayed silent about slavery, why Christians stayed silent about segregation, right? That, that people of color are somehow less than human, or I would never own a slave, but I don't want to impede on other people's rights to do that. And can I, can I just tell you that this leaves us in a place leaves us in a place where we dehumanize the unborn. We traumatize women. And let's be honest, we let men off the hook way too easy with this conversation. But I believe there's actually an opportunity before us as the church to demand a culture of life in our world. And our denomination is clearly and unapologetically a pro-life denomination. And I'm not talking about the 4% of exceptions that everybody likes to talk about 96% of the time, right? There's that 4% that gets the most noise of the life and the health of a mother and, and rape or incest, and those are a different conversation. That's not what Proposal 3 is addressing. What Proposal 3 addresses... And I've read this proposal in its entirety multiple times to the letter. I'm not, deal, I'm not going off the hype. I haven't even seen a single one of the commercials. I'm purely going off of the proposal itself. What this proposal does is it guarantees a right to an abortion up until the age of viability. Right? The state cannot impede on that, which is around the 25-week mark. And then beyond that, it allows the state to regulate abortion, but there has to be an exception for things like mental distress, physical distress, and there's a whole host of medical professionals that can define what that means. And I'm not here to fear monger, but I am here to say that I believe the church is called to be a culture that elevates life, and I will not, I will not succumb to the argument that somehow one life matters more than another, or one life has to be pit against another, that I believe we actually can get creative and innovative as a society and a culture to elevate all life. Amen? Amen. And so I've never done this before. But I just want to boldly say, I will be voting no on Proposal 3, and I want to ask you to consider to do the same. If you are a part of this community, this church, if you consider me a shepherd of this community, I want to boldly ask you to vote no on Proposal 3, because indifference towards people is indifference towards Jesus. But if that's where I ended the sermon... My heart could look exactly like the rich man and nobody would know the difference. But love gets close enough to know. 
And there are actually people in our church, in this community, who are entering into this specific space right now, who have dedicated their lives to this space, dedicated their lives to embodying a love that gets close enough to know. And one person that I think of that has given her life to this is a woman in our church named Pam Rookus. And Pam is a phenomenal, phenomenal woman of God who walks with women and men who have been wounded by the issue of abortion. And that's not something we like to talk about a lot. We don't like to talk about abortion trauma a lot. But it's very real and it exists. And I just asked Pam, can I share your story with our church? And she said yes. And so I'm going to invite the band up as we close and I'm just going to read Pam's story of just this last week. This is a beautiful and incredible story of a love that gets close enough to know. Pam says this, I am privileged to serve with a ministry called Deeper Still that brings hope and healing to women and men who have been wounded by abortion. Last weekend, we held a retreat for several women who had abortion in their pasts. All were over the age of 60 except for a 44-year-old and a 54-year-old. All had a history of sexual abuse and the fallout of many broken relationships. One woman had lived with the pain and regret of abortion for 49 years. She had her abortion in March of 1973, right after Roe v. Wade was decided in January of that same year. So literally two months after Roe v. Wade was decided. All of these women arrived at the retreat on Friday afternoon with fear written across their faces. After welcoming them in, getting them settled, and having a delicious meal together, we begin with a time of worship to settle all of our hearts on the love of God. Then we broke into small groups to share our stories. A woman in my group began with the fact that she herself was an unwanted late pregnancy. And in fact, her dad left her family before she was ever born. A married man she worked with took advantage of her loneliness, and she found herself in a crisis pregnancy. She convinced herself that she would not be able to love a baby, so she made the decision to abort. She experienced terrible physical consequences afterwards and has never been able to conceive again. That's not something we really talk about or share. The next day, as we were working through steps of healing, this same woman was assigned to my team. I remember her statement about never feeling loved and realized that she had never experienced the unconditional love of God. Where it gets really good, guys. So before we began, I asked her if she had ever committed her life to Jesus. She answered that she was not as committed as some people she knew. And when I asked her if she had ever surrendered her heart to Christ, she shook her head no. We talked about how we are all sinners and that our sin separates us from a holy and a righteous God. But God was not indifferent about the barrier of our sin. And he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins because love gets close enough to know. I asked if she believed this. And she said yes. And I asked if she'd like to pray and surrender to God. And again, she said yes. And right then and there, she prayed a prayer of salvation. When we finished, she had the most beautiful smile on her face, and we all hugged together. And there is a time during this retreat set aside to grieve the baby's loss to abortion. 
We provide soft teddy bears wrapped in blankets, rocking chairs, and soft music. After giving her privacy for a while, I approached and asked if she had a name for her baby. She eagerly told me her baby girl's name. I love this. Right? It, remi- it has the ringings of Jesus' story about Lazarus to me. Right? There's something powerful that happens when there's a name. She was excited to realize that her baby was in heaven and she was going to see her someday. Most of the people come into the retreat feeling very unlovable. And yet what they experience there is very different. They are showered with God's love through his word, worship, food, and fellowship. They soon realize the love they've been looking for their whole life was Jesus, and he was there all the time, loving them even if they didn't love him or even love themselves. It's a beautiful process to walk someone walk through the valley of shame and regret into the radiant freedom of forgiveness from love of the Father. Because love gets close enough to know. Is your life marked by an invitation of inviting other people in who carry shame, who carry regret, who carry heartache, who carry baggage? Say, bring it all. That's the invitation of Jesus. And one of the conditions that Pam told me, she gave me permission to share her story, but she said, this is my only condition. I'm sorry, I'm long today, but we'll deal with it. She said, my only condition is that other women and men who have been wounded by abortion know they have a place to go in this church. Right? We're not going to just stand on the street corners with our signs. We're going to actually open our hands and our hearts to people who are wounded by this very real issue. And so if, if you're here and that's part of your story, I want you to hear more than anything else. You are adored. You're loved. You're cherished. You're valued. You're seen. And you're not alone. And uh, so what I did is I just printed off some slips of paper that have Pam's contact information on them. She, she made herself available. And if that's you and you're here after the service and you've been impacted by this in some way, you've been wounded by this in some way, uh, just grab a sheet of paper from me, no questions asked, and, and we would love to get you connected with Pam and she would love to pray with you, she'd love to walk with you, she'd love to be present with you because love gets close enough to know. And so let me offer a prayer for us and then we're going to stand. Actually, let's stand now and um, I'm going to close this in prayer and then we're going to worship. Jesus, I pray that we will not be people of indifference. Indifference is so easy in our world today. It's just another, it's just another, it's just another. But Jesus, where we see just another, you see stories and faces and names. And so, Father, I pray that our lives will become invitations. Invitations for people to come and experience a love that gets close enough to know. That, God, where we have barriers up, I pray you will tear those down in a way that only you can. And that as a result, you will provide healing, salvation, and restoration and redemption for those whose hearts are far from you. 
Father, we love you. And the only reason we love you is because your word says that you first loved us. So we pray all of this in the name of Jesus and everybody said,